Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got two more hours this week to go against the grain, and uh, there's a bunch to talk about. We also have a conversation that uh, we've been hoping to have that we're pretty excited about with a guest in the first hour, so looking forward to that, but... uh, John, I guess we're going to get into the investigation into Donald Trump a little bit more. Uh, The Justice Department has now appealed the judge's ruling on a special master, or at least the Mm -hmm. uh, extent to which the special master can uh, intervene in the investigation. So I guess we will see where that takes us. We are going to get into North Korea's newly outlined nuclear posture and legislation. We'll talk a little bit about the state of American democracy and the state of war correspondence. Uh, I'm going to ask about D.C.'s new state of emergency and whether it should call attention to places far from the U.S. Capitol. Uh, We've got a rematch of Sanders versus Manchin and uh, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which is something we've talked about on the show a lot, uh, but hasn't really gotten a lot of national attention all of a sudden in the spotlight, uh, I hope to good effect. Uh, We got politics later in the show. We've got news of the weird. John, I accidentally read one news of the weird item and i'm still very upset about it <laughs> this uh, is a good one i actually had trouble uh narrowing them down to just a few good ones there's a lot of weird news this week and also a story that i i noticed it's probably uh you know worth worth a deeper dive next week but um the united states might not escape uh, energy price crunches and energy supply crunches that that Europe is going through, at least regionally. There was a story in FT about how um, New England basically is uh, a little uncomfortable with how much United States uh, natural gas is going to Europe and are really concerned that uh, the, the, the export of this gas is driving the price up in the United States. And so, you know, maybe not across the country, like Europe is sort of going to experience across the continent, but at least in the uh, the Northeast region, you know, where people go through very long, very cold winters, they yeah. are also looking at uh, prices, you know, three times as high as, as usual, according to this article. And the governors of a bunch of New England states have written to the Biden administration saying, we want you to help us get domestic LNG supplies from the Gulf of Mexico uh, and maybe not send all of it to Europe. We need it, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things that people haven't mentioned, too, is that Norway uh, is one of the world's largest producers of both oil and natural gas. Mm -hmm. And uh, we heard yesterday that the British are going to start fracking in the North Sea, but we haven't heard anything about the Norwegians yet. And it's interesting to me uh, that we haven't. Yeah. It's it's like we're forcing ourselves and the Europeans are forcing themselves to be dependent on the Middle East and on Russia when there is. And the U.S. when it comes to natural gas, we are suddenly we have a huge share of yeah. natural gas exports. We're uh, I think huge. we're now the we, I think we edged out Qatar for for a bit as the, the biggest supplier. Yes. Yes. We we sit on an ocean of natural gas. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But of course, you have production capacity issues limiting it. Right. And so, yeah, the, the New England is worried that um, they are going to see a huge 
increases in heating electricity prices on, on top of inflation, which is, of course, what we've been talking about uh, Europe experiencing for a while now. Yes. Uh, I yes. guess the other thing we should talk about, John, is this wall to wall, absolutely uncritical coverage of the death of the Queen of England. Uh, yeah. I'm surprised. A couple of friends of mine yesterday who live in different parts of the Commonwealth asked me how the U.S. was was going to react to the death or reacting to the death. And first I said, I, I feel like don't ask me to speak for uh, for for the average American or certainly the average like American uh, TV channel, because I really can't. I'm constantly surprised at what they do. I would not have guessed that CNN's entire Internet front page would mm -hmm. be the queen. You have to scroll even past like the next layer down is all yeah. queen stories. You have to scroll further to get to anything else. Almost all of the Washington Post front page is different stories about the queen. All of the New York Times front page on a computer screen is uh, is the queen. Although if you scroll up or scroll down, you'll get to Trump very quickly. BuzzFeed, right? Oh. BuzzFeed does American news, don't they? I mean, yeah. I'm sure they do international stuff. Once All of BuzzFeed's front page is the queen and the a story about like handbag rip, you know, uh, designer handbag ripoffs. I mean, oh, even the New York Post today had a had a story uh, at the at the top that Charles, you know, King King Charles the uh, third returned to Buckingham Palace and couldn't figure out which entrance to use. Okay. And they had a video of him going from God. door to door trying to figure out how to get inside the palace. Uh, but honestly, why are we spending? I mean, again, we, you know, we sort of laughed yesterday that we don't we don't have to talk about the queen. But the coverage of this is it's, you know, the Washington Post says Britain mourns a life of duty and service. OK, mm -hmm. this is sort of what everyone is saying. And I don't you know, whatever. We don't need to, like, throw mud on the queen as an individual necessarily. But uh, the closest CNN got to examining the many crimes and controversies of this royal family was saying that Camilla has a decisive history, a divisive history. Yes. And uh, and so, you know, it's funny, like they sort of try one story. This is The New York Times. They tried to sort of mention but not go into detail uh, about uh, some of the bad things in the legacy of the royal family. Uh, and so, you know, you have this line in New York Times story about how people are reacting to the death, saying, you know, for some, the queen's death revived memories of her region's colonial, her region's colonial past and the monarchy's role in the slave trade. Oh, do we hear any more about that? No, no, no. No, you just sort of mention it and then wa wander away from it. Uh, it notes in a story that otherwise just details, uh, you know, heartbreak and mourning. Uh, the story says that he's at a barber shop or something and says uh, an Indian customer piped up to say that British monarchs had unleashed chaos in her country. Oh, what was that about? No, you won't learn it from the New York Times. You won't hear anything about that. Just, you know, nothing but a life of duty and service and how great this mm -hmm. this is and how she, you know, was a, a stalwart and dignified example of longstanding tradition. And it's like, yeah, it's bad, guys. It's very bad. You lived in a castle. You know what I mean? Like take a fraction, a fraction of the wealth that the royal family uh, uh, sits upon and enjoys could change the lives of, of, uh, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. It's just, we don't, mm -hmm. we don't need to pretend that this is fine. 
I, no, I, you're absolutely right. It's ridiculous. And, and nobody's talking about it. You know, they're talking about um, uh, the fact that Charles went to first to Balmoral and then he went to Buckingham and he's going this weekend to uh, Windsor. I mean, this is just three of the many, many castles that they own uh, all over the UK. Uh, they have, they have, uh, what do you call it? Uh, when your parents give you uh, money every week. An allowance? Um, a royal allowance? allowance? Yeah. Allowances of millions of dollars. They have the largest art collection in the world. I remember once reading an article in Art News Magazine mm. saying that Queen Elizabeth owned more art than any other single person in the world. Mm -hmm. And not art, you know, you get on the sidewalk. I yeah. mean, like, serious the, the greatest where art does this in the world. wealth come from in the not very distant exactly. at all past this all comes from you know riches that were stolen from other countries yeah. through the process yeah. of colonization i mean come on why exactly. do we i i love a castle as much as anyone right i love a, a big piece of jewelry with a bunch of stones on it that sparkle i love that stuff but it doesn't mean that you know uh, I think the the wealth that that contains should be uh, withheld when it could be improving the lives of actual right. living and dying people. You know, there, it just is. It's absurd. And I want to contrast that, you know, because, again, whatever is it? Uh, well, no one is digging up the, the sort of. Uh, the Queen's personal scandals really very much right now. It's fine. But I want to contrast the way um, the death of this monarch is being treated with this story in Politico, the Politico's week weekend magazine uh, that's entitled, they voted to overturn an election. Did their obits let them off the hook? Election denialism hardly made the coverage of recent politicians' death. So apparently, you know, for, for powerful and high-profile figures, when they die, you should actually look at the entirety of, yeah, of their career and what they represent and make damn sure you note that on January 6th, they voted against certifying the results of a 2020 election. But when you, you know— Sit on sit on a throne for decades that's built on the bones and flesh of colonized people. We don't want to mention that. We just want to talk about how much you loved your corgis. I mean, yeah. you know, I, well, it's got to be a very weird thing to be born into that kind of family and born into that kind of situation. And, and I'm sure she did feel that she was doing or well, I'm not sure, but I, I can imagine, you know, she felt that she was doing some kind of duty. But uh, it's bizarre. You know, and it's not just us here in the U.S. and those subjects in the U.K. Uh, that are that are mourning the loss of this this great international leader. Even in the Greek press, which I've told you many times, I read every day. Even the Greek press today is celebrating the fact that for the first time, the King of England is Greek <sighs> because Prince Philip happened to be born in Corfu and his mother was a, a Greek Orthodox a princess who resigned her royal positions and became a nun. And so Charles is one quarter Greek. Mm -hmm. And so this is why the Greek people need to celebrate and to uh, support the British royal family.
Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, I will say certainly in social media, you can find quite a lot of people who are not mourning the queen and quite a lot of celebrations of the the death of what she represents. But you won't see any of that in the wall to wall coverage. And also, I mean, again, why? Why? Why are we stopping all the presses to remark upon uh, the passage of, of this old woman? Uh, it's ju- it's just I mean, I'm not surprised that there's a little bit of coverage, but I'm surprised at how blanketed we are with it. Um, hey, can I give you a little bit of good news, John? Please. Remember, we talked yesterday fight. about that. Uh, the bizarre obstacles that Michigan uh, mm-hmm. Republican state uh, legislators were putting up to uh, preventing this uh, abortion ballot initiative from getting on the ballot where they said, no, actually, it's because of the way your your typeface was set. It it should be not allowable. Uh, The Michigan Supreme Court has said the question will have to be put to voters in November on the ballot. Uh, So that'll be another very interesting, you know, are we going to see another Kansas there where a a state with a pretty right wing state government or state legislature, at least, elects uh, elects to protect abortion rights in their state. Uh, that'll be interesting to watch. Absolutely. Very interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. And I think, frankly, that's going to be uh, or what we're seeing is the, the beginning of a trend mm-hmm. when conservative states like Michigan and Kansas uh, act politically to protect people's rights to uh, control their own bodies. Mm-hmm. Then I think that's that bodes well for the future in many different places. I also think it continues a trend that I've been pointing out since, um, you know, over the last couple of years where the success and failure of ballot initiatives does not really predict, uh, the way the state will vote generally when it comes to, you know, going red or going blue, because increasingly these parties, what they represent is simply not ideologically coherent. You know what I mean? So the fact that a state is going to vote, um, you know, votes to, say, uh, raise the minimum wage or restore voting rights to some felons or to enshrine abortion rights doesn't mean that they are going to vote Democratic because the party doesn't necessarily represent those things and you can't count on those things. Mm-hmm. And so I find this yeah. fascinating. I'm very interested in in a, a proliferation of ballot initiatives. I mean, it seems like a, a better way than relying on a political party to follow through with its promises uh, to get what you want done in your state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And like I say, I think we're seeing the beginning of a trend. We're going to see a lot more of this. All right, John, you're going to have to wait to talk to us about uh, Greece and Turkey threatening each other. We can save that to the rest of the show. I think we should take a little break now uh, and come back and get into our conversation with our first guest. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm John Kiriakou, and I'm working today with my co-host, Michelle Witte, even though I'm not in the studio. <laughs> it's okay, John. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretending you're sitting across from me. Well, news of the death of Queen Elizabeth II has pushed most other stories lower down the page, as Michelle pointed out a, a moment ago. But that doesn't make them any less important. 
Federal prosecutors yesterday said they would ask the judge who suspended their access to the classified documents they seized at Mar-a-Lago to stay her decision. And if she doesn't, they will appeal to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. In a separate filing, prosecutors indicated that they would appeal the same judge's decision that bars them from even looking at the documents until the special master reviews them. In New York yesterday, former presidential counselor Steve Bannon was arraigned on multiple felony charges arising from his role in the We Build the Wall fraud, or alleged fraud maybe I should say. Bannon is facing as much as 15 years in prison on charges of wire fraud, mail fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering. Donald Trump pardoned him in the waning days of his administration after Bannon was charged with federal felonies related to the We Build the Wall program. In international news, while the West, and particularly the United States, is focused on Ukraine, there are developments in Asia. North Korea today announced that it was revising its laws to allow it to launch a nuclear strike in the event that the United States or South Korea attempts to remove Kim Jong-un from power. The new law also would allow a nuclear strike if North Korea is attacked by the United States or South Korea using only conventional forces. And on Ukraine, CIA Director William Burns said yesterday that the war in Ukraine has been a failure for Russia. Speaking at the Billington Cybersecurity Conference in Washington, Burns said that the CIA's official assessment, which is a big deal to say this in public, is that Russia has lost the war and has underestimated U.S. and European resolve to oppose it. But he conceded that the war has only been going on for six months and that Western Europe must somehow replace Russian gas and oil. We are very happy to be joined by the great author and journalist, Chris Hedges. Chris is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who's a former Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. He's also written for Truth Dig and his work now appears on Substack. He's the winner of more journalism awards than I can shake a stick at. And so we are thrilled to have him. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. So happy to have you, Chris. Let's start with Donald Trump and his current predicament. We've been saying for days that legal scholars believe that Judge Amy Cannon erred in naming a special master to review the documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. And even Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, said that Cannon's ruling was a mistake. Now the Justice Department is asking that her decision be overturned, or at least that she stay it herself. Trump posted on Truth Social about this more than two dozen times yesterday, and to me that shows that he's clearly worried. But what exactly is the endgame supposed to be? Is the Biden administration really seriously going to prosecute a former president of the United States? And if they do, do you think it'll be under the Espionage Act? Or are we looking at something more akin to just an embarrassment for Trump, like maybe a charge of obstruction of justice or conspiracy? I think the latter for a couple reasons. There's strong sentiment within the Democratic Party to allow Trump to run again. Uh, this is, of course, the disastrous tactic that the Hillary Clinton campaign took yeah. by promoting, we know from the leaked uh, emails, the Podesta emails that were published by WikiLeaks, by promoting Trump as a candidate when he was running for the Republican nomination. Uh, we have seen the Democratic Party spend significant funds to promote far-right candidates on the assumption that they will be easier to beat. Uh, so I would go with embarrassment. But I think there's also a legal issue. If you go back and look at 
the uh, criminal case against Hillary Clinton for possession of classified uh, documents, uh, the FBI uh, recommended that she not be prosecuted uh, uh, for accessing classified materials on her personal non-secured email account. That was 2016. Remember that moment that something was when James Comey, who was the director of the FBI, uh, announced that the FBI discovered 110 emails and 52 email chains that contained classified uh, material. Uh, but even then, Comey recommended the Justice Department that no criminal charges be brought. So uh, they have had, we've had, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Donald Trump has violated numerous laws, not just for inciting, mm-hmm. to incite insurrection, delegitimize. Uh, an election on January 6th, but uh, uh, the emoluments clause, uh, on and on and on. Uh, And the Democratic Party has just repeatedly failed to bring the weight of the courts uh, upon him. Uh, And, and you know, we're in a very strange uh, situation because uh, Trump has essentially uh, been able to uh, uh, take advantage of uh, uh, a court appoint his own court appointee to to protect. Right, right. absolutely right. Uh, L- Lindsey Graham said a few days ago, Chris, that if Trump is convicted of a crime, there will be riots in the streets, and that those riots would be justified. To me, that sounded like a call to arms, something that I don't recall happening before in my lifetime, unless you you think of the, say, the summer of 1968. I suppose that I could see another January 6th taking place one of these days, but I can't imagine a sustained uprising if Donald Trump is convicted of something. Am I being naive here, or is this something you think we should be worried about? I think if you look at so we've had about 76 countries since 2000 that have either jailed or prosecuted for former leaders. And in none of those wow. countries did that happen. You had Lula da Silva. He spent a year and a half in prison in Brazil. Uh, Netanyahu was indicted for a bribery and fraud. Uh, the French, former French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, was sentenced to prison. Uh, the South Korean president, uh, uh, the first female president. Uh, who ruled from 2013 to 2017, uh, served five years in prison for corruption. Uh, So I I think uh, if history is any guide, these are the kind of hyperbolic threats that come from Trump supporters, but often, uh, I think, uh, are not borne out in kind of what happens on the ground. So I'm with you that I don't don't think they're going to indict Trump. Uh, I think, again, it is, it is a way to try and tarnish or diminish his political credibility um, without actually turning him into a martyr, and he would be turned to, into a martyr. Uh, uh, and, and I don't see any kind of an uprising around that. I wanted to ask you about the prosecution of Steve Bannon in New York. In my own personal opinion, Steve Bannon is just a grifter. It's as simple as that. I don't care if he's a billionaire or he owns the rights to Seinfeld or he's a famous Hollywood producer. I don't care. I think he's just a grifter. 
And even though Donald Trump pardoned him at the end of his term to save Bannon from federal charges related to this We Build the Wall scam, uh, Bannon couldn't escape state charges in New York, and now he's looking at 15 years in prison. He made several outbursts yesterday in the Manhattan courthouse uh, that were picked up by the media. He's clearly worried. How do you see this playing out? Does Bannon stand on his principles and, and take it like a man? Does he flip on his co-defendants? Does he work out a deal with DOJ to then uh, have the the feds put pressure on the state so that so that they drop the charges and Bannon eventually testifies against Trump? What do you think is going to happen here? I mean, that's a difficult question because it's very hard for me to get inside the head of Bannon. Sure. Um, uh, he is completely a crook. I mean, he, he, he was charged with defrauding donors uh, in this $25 million fundraising scheme called We Build a Wall. I think he took a million of it for himself. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars were diverted to the people who, along with Bannon, organized this, although they had all written promises to donors that they were volunteers and would receive no competition. Um, I, I mean, he he's such a morally problematic figure um, that he uh, could very well uh, decide to turn on Trump. Uh, but I also sense, watching him, that he has a kind of martyr complex uh, so he could very well uh, essentially play that card as mm -hmm. the martyr. But I think in this case, unlike Trump, he has every reason to be worried. Michelle, did you want to ask a question? Oh, yeah, I did. I was going to ask Chris about what people should do. I, I saw in your recent sub Substack, you wrote that uh, the U.S. is not much of a functioning democracy anymore. And sort of all, all of this conversation is kind of details dancing around that. Uh, and you detailed the reasons for your conclusion in that essay. I, I don't disagree with any of them. But I wonder, you know, what what are people inside a, uh, a you know, Potemkin democracy to do, right? Uh, if we want to do anything but sort of chronicle uh, this disaster, are there historical guidelines we can look to and ways that, to avert the ship or ways to create something new without, you know, getting to the lowest possible point? What, you know, what, how, how should people continue with this knowledge? Well, I watched it. I covered the revolutions in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Start pulling half a million people a day in Alexanderplatz in East Berlin or Wenzelau Square in Prague. Um, and the ruling elites are so discredited that the police and the military will no longer protect it, uh, then they're finished. Uh, and I think that the, the credibility of the ruling class, if you want to go by opinion polls, uh, Congress, I think, has a lower approval rating than the press, which is about 11 percent or something. Or maybe wow. press has a lower rating than Congress. I don't know, but the, but the the uh, I think it's time for acts of mass nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, and I think across the political spectrum, there's just an understanding of the deep rot. Um, and you're referring to my column, uh, "Let's Stop Pretending America's a Functioning Democracy," which you can find in Substack or on Shearpost. Um, and a lot of that comes out of the political philosopher Sheldon Wolin, uh, his book, Democracy Incorporated, 
uh, where he uses this term inverted totalitarianism. So it's much like the end of Rome, where you still have a Senate and you have the language of the Republic, uh, the facade of democratic institutions, the same symbols and iconography haven't changed. The Constitution still ostensibly is a sacred document. Um, uh, uh, but internally, corporations have just uh, seized all of the levers of power. Uh, you, you see it uh, certainly with the war industry, uh, which is bleeding the country dry and one debacle after another. And I would add Ukraine to that list. Um, uh, and, and there's just no way to uh, halt the kind of disemboweling of the country. Uh, so uh, I think that that is somehow believing that Congress is going to reform itself. I mean, I saw uh, these appeals to the Democratic Party to get money out of politics. Well, these people like Pelosi or Schumer or Clinton wouldn't even be in power unless they had Wall Street money. The power of a Schumer and Pelosi is that they funnel the money to the anointed candidates. Uh, so you take money out of politics and they vanish as political figures. Uh, so it's not going to reform itself. Uh, but I did watch in, I mean, East Germany was certainly as about as despotic as they get. It had a massive surveillance system. And I was there for 89. Uh, the communist leadership sends down an elite paratroop division to Leipzig, which is where the street protests originated. And uh, the, the local leaders, because their families were all out in the street, wouldn't deploy uh, the paratroopers in the streets, uh, and Honecker, the, who'd been in power for 19 years, lasted another week. So that's how it works. Um, but I think we've reached that kind of fatal stage uh, where it, it's a massive popular protest is all we have left. Can I ask also, I mean, you you said that people across the political spectrum are are seeing uh, our our democracy for something closer to what it actually is and this is something that uh, keeps coming up both both in some of the protests we've seen in Europe and to some extent in the United States that yeah you are seeing uh people from the left and the right finding common ground but there is always a, a lot of anxiety over who are appropriate or safe political bedfellows and who should you not ally yourself with, even if you have some overlapping interests. And I wanted to ask about that, about whether you are seeing a trend where, you know, pe people whose ideology might be uh, largely in opposition to each other, but who found some common ground and, and do feel a sort of shared recognition that our, our democracy is not what it appears to be. Uh, are you seeing more of, uh, you know, what is often called disparagingly a red-brown alliance, disparaging because it's, it's I think, intended to disparage the left? Is this, is this useful? Uh, should people be more concerned about making sure they maintain a distance from people who, you know, who have political beliefs that they find either, you know, whatever, from the spectrum of uh, sort of distasteful to to hateful and repellent? Uh, or is this a time for some kind of uh, uh, solidarity that has a little more uh, blinkers on it, I guess? I think the big issue comes down not to ideology, but to violence. Mm -hmm. So those segments uh, that believe violence is a solution, we have to keep at arm's length. Um, but 
Otherwise, we, we need to build alliances. I mean, you look at the organizing of the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island. Uh, you had Trump supporters. You had, but they were organizing about their own empowerment. And this is Lord Salisbury that uh, uh, you know there are no permanent allies. There's only permanent power. Uh, well, yeah. I sued Barack Obama over Section 121 of the National Defense Authorization Act. We actually won to their, the White House's surprise, uh, and then the uh, Obama administration appealed it, and uh, they, the way they block it because it was flagrantly unconstitutional. This, in essence, overturned the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act that would permit the government to use the military as a domestic police force. Um, uh, they didn't recognize my standing. But when I brought the case, we had uh, right-wing libertarian groups who wanted to file amicus briefs in my support, and we accepted all of them. Uh, so I, I think that the, the and I don't think it's the left, but I think let's call it the kind of uh, boutique, educated, urban left uh, has created all these moral purity tests through cancel culture and everything else that is immensely self-defeating uh, and essentially alienates them from working men and women. And, and half of my family comes from Maine, uh, rural, uh, low-income Maine. I'm uh, acutely aware of the suffering, and it's real that they and the white uh, working class have undergone. I find some of their, maybe many of their political beliefs uh, repugnant. Uh, but uh, if we don't build alliances with um, across the board with people who have been victims of deindustrialization and unfair trade deals and uh, wage stagnation and everything else, we're going to go nowhere. Yeah. Chris, pretty much the only nice thing that I can say about Donald Trump is that he was right on North Korea. We had had a succession of administrations that worked incredibly hard to not talk to North Korea, but cast aside precedent and uh, he opened a dialogue. Uh, Democrats complained that nothing came of it, but I would posit that anything that reduces tensions uh, between two countries is a good thing. Now the North Koreans are upping the ante with what amounts to a first strike policy. Is there any reason at all to be optimistic about U.S. relations with North Korea are there any positive developments that we're just not focusing on? I, I agree with you uh, in terms of uh, Trump and North Korea. Uh, the Democratic Party has really signed on for uh, expanding this doctrine of permanent war. Uh, and that, of course, uh, in, is largely uh, to fuel the profits of the arms industry. Uh, that's why they all love the war in Ukraine, which I think is this proxy war is a disaster. It'll destroy Ukraine. Uh, the uh, it, it, as far as I can tell from a distance, it's of a, a, a stalemate, a, a front along hundreds of miles that retreats and advances. I mean, largely artillery duels, um, and uh, they are, are very aggressive, antagonistic towards China. Um, and this is very dangerous in a nuclear world. I mean, the, the South Korea, no, excuse me, North Korea is acutely aware that the only reason they still exist is because they have the bomb. Uh, the, and they know that if uh, Saddam Hussein had the bomb, Saddam Hussein or one of his sons would probably still be in power today. Um, and, and we don't, uh, you know, ever speak about the Middle East, where Israel 
in in violation of the non-proliferation treaty, created a, a, a nuclear arsenal, which of course uh, Iran and other countries now Saudi Arabia. So uh, the um, antagonizing a, a nuclear state like North Korea uh, is, uh, especially given its the paranoid quality of its leadership, is is dangerous. Uh, and uh, and I don't get it. I don't I don't see any bright spots at the moment. I don't follow North and South Korea that closely, but. Um, I would agree with you. I think that, that Trump did was a, was a positive. A lot of us, frankly, have expected more from a Joe Biden foreign policy. We expected him to reopen diplomatic relations with Cuba, for example, that Donald Trump uh, shut down. We expected him to reenter the JCPOA and improve relations with Iran. That hasn't happened yet, and it looks like it may not happen. And Secretary of State Tony Blinken just doesn't inspire confidence. This is a question that I've asked periodically over the past year and a half, but I've never really gotten a, a real answer. Why haven't we seen more foreign policy from Joe Biden? All we have in nearly two years now is a Cold War with Russia and what appears to be a provocation of, of China over ta uh, Taiwan. But there's really nothing um, that, can be, that can be presented to the American people as a, as a victory. Why is that? Well— because the kind of coterie of neocons and liberal interventionists like Samantha Power and Hillary Clinton and everyone else who orchestrated the last two decades of uh, military fiascos are ensconced, including Victoria Nuland, in the, in the uh, uh, Biden White House. Yeah. Biden himself comes out of this. I mean, he was, he was one of the cheerleaders for— the war in Iraq, uh, and uh, they, uh, you know, they mutate they, in kinds of their labels. You know, first they're cold warriors, and they're neocons, and they're uh, liberal interventionists. Uh, they will gravitate towards these think tanks, which are largely funded by the war industry, almost some of them completely funded by the war industry, Project for the New American Century, American Enterprise Institute. Foreign Policy Institute, Institute for the Study of War, Atlantic Council, Brookings Institute, and they're just on this kind of or the or Council on Foreign Relations in New York, and it's just this merry-go-round where they step in and out of power, not only in and out of power, but in and out of Republican and Democratic administrations. So Victoria Newland, for example, was Cheney's chief foreign policy advisor, and now she's yeah. in the Biden White House, and the person who was one of the people behind the 2014 coup in, in the Ukraine. Um, and on this issue, there really is no daylight. In some ways, the Democrats are worse. Uh, there's no issue daylight between the establishment Republican Party and the Democratic Party at all. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about Ukraine. Help me understand the long-term U.S. strategy here. The administration yesterday announced yet another $2 billion in military aid to Ukraine. U.S. defense contractors are loving this. Just look at their stock prices today. U.S. aid is, in part, keeping the American economy going. Is that really what the strategy here is? Or is the strategy to, quote, defeat, unquote, Russia and, uh, and depose Vladimir Putin? There is no strategy. Um, uh, there's no vision. I mean, because eventually, the, 
either you're going to have to talk. Uh, I think that it's much like uh, the old Afghanistan, where they saw the chance to carry out a war of attrition uh, that would degrade Russia's military and, of course, boost the profits of the arms industry, which I think is one of the engines behind the expansion of NATO. And again, I was in Eastern Europe in 89, NATO, which was formed in 1949 to prevent Soviet expansion into Eastern and Central Europe should have been disbanded after the unification of Germany. Indeed, there were promises made to Moscow that uh, NATO would not be expanded, but it was too lucrative. I mean, one, they saw the, the Russia as weak and the, and the kind of hubris of the American uh, military-industrial establishment felt they could do whatever they want, but also there were billions and billions of dollars to be made. Um, so I, I don't think there's a lot—I don't think it's thought out. I, I think it's a— it's a it's a very dangerous and short sighted uh, strategy that uh, and it and Russia's military has been hurt without question. Um, uh, but I you know I hate to come down on the side of Henry Kissinger, a figure I loathe, of course. But he's right. He comes out of that old sense of understanding geopolitical power. I mean, the irony is that for years and years, and go back to Nixon's pivot to China is that it was always there was always uh, a policy out of Washington to make sure that uh, Moscow and Beijing were closer to Washington than they were to each other. But yeah. by putting this kind of pressure on uh, Russia and the long demonization of Russia, which fed into the and provocation, which fed into Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine, which I'm against, it's preemptive war, but one has to. Right. And that there are historical antecedents to that, um, uh, that we've we've created a, a strong alliance between China and Russia that for, that the, the establishment foreign policy spent decades trying to prevent. That's why I think Kissinger has been so prescient on calling for an end to these arms shipments and negotiations, uh, and 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 also calling on the Ukrainians to give up land in exchange for peace. This is a rap yep. policy, but I don't see what the policy we're pursuing as rational, and neither does Kissinger. I have to wonder, too, how much Europeans can handle in the name of supporting Ukraine. We talked yesterday on the show about what a difficult winter it's going to be for the Europeans. They're going to be dramatically short of fuel, and prices are already out of control. Uh, Liz Truss said yesterday she's going to enact price caps, which is so ironic uh, with her being as conservative as she is. But this certainly isn't sustainable over the long term. Do we get to a point, do you think, where EU citizens and Brits stand up and say, enough, negotiate a settlement to this war? Well, I think we're already seeing that kind of uh, sentiment sweeping across here. Weren't there were like 70,000 people out in Prague or something the other day? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, I mean, the irony is that we've kind of sacrificed the European economy for— this war, we're not paying the price. All those things aren't great here, uh, but you're right. Things are very, very dire in Europe. I think that's one of the reasons you, you see this fawning coverage of uh, the Queen. Uh, that that and you know everybody on the BBC and all the presenters on uh, British television have to be in black suits and uh, and, and I think this kind of uh, reverence. The, conceals a kind of panic inside 
the UK and the European establishment, because of course the the power of the Queen uh, was that uh, she was uh, one of the principal vehicles by which uh, these elites justified their privilege. I want to ask you also about um, Israel. I, I had occasion to speak with several members of the Knesset at the beginning of the week and um, and a couple of prominent professors at the University of Tel Aviv. And they told me that there is no such thing anymore as a liberal Israeli, that the only question is, do you want Bibi Netanyahu, or do you not want Bibi Netanyahu? Otherwise, for literally every Israeli, the uh, the overriding political issue that everybody cares about is security, whether it is against the Palestinians or it's against the Iranians. And um, as a consequence of this, uh, the Arab party, the Arab-Israeli party that was in this coalition government that just collapsed uh, a few weeks ago, um, has already said that it will not participate in the next Israeli government because nobody cares about the Palestinians. Nobody cares about about illegal housing. Nobody cares about justice issues. And so they're just going to sit it out. Uh, how did we get to this point? Was this Donald Trump walking away from the Palestinians with the so-called Abraham Accords? Has it always been this way and the Arab Israelis just decided they're going to give a, a try to coalition government and it just didn't work out? Is there is there really any hope if you are a Palestinian living in Israel? The only hope, which I'm a strong supporter of, is the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement mm-hmm. modeled, of course, on the uh, sanctions movement against apartheid South Africa. Internally, you're right. I lived in Israel. And I was, lived in the Middle East for seven years, but and I speak Arabic. But I spent uh, two years living in Jerusalem, and and because I'm an Arabic speaker, I was usually the person covering Gaza for the New York Times, even when I was based in Cairo. No, the the I think what happened in Israel is very similar to what happened in the United States, and that is that, and this is of course characteristic of all late empires, is that you build. This is uh, Tone B writes about this, but you build a a military establishment that essentially becomes a state within a state. So that's what happened in Israel. And when I first went to Israel, which was 1988, you had a, a real left. Um, I mean, some of my close—I was overseas for 20 years, and some of my closest friends were and remain to this day Israeli. Mm-hmm. Very courageous reporting, Amira Haas, Gideon Levy, Miko Pellet, and others. Some of the best reporting on the Palestinians were actually done by Aretz. Um and Israeli newspapers. So these were Israeli yes. reporting on. Uh, but oh, that's right. All of that has vanished. The old Labor Party. I knew Yitzhak Rabin, who was a character. Uh, but but Rabin was uh, the last major political figure to realize that the prolonged occupation of the Palestinians was destroying the country that he helped build, mm-hmm. that he loved, which was Israel. Uh, and yeah. Israel is, you know, the income inequality. The, a country who was a socialist country, which was largely being dismantled in the late 80s. Uh, so it, it, what's happened in Israel in many ways parallels what's happened in the United States with all of the same results. Uh, but it is, it is a different country and an openly racist country. I mean, when I was there, you had a figure like Mir Kahana, who was assassinated eventually, but 
he was a rabid racist Islamophobe, but he was considered a pariah by yes. Israeli establishment. Now, uh, Avidor Lieberman and these other figures who are uh, even outdo Kahana in terms of uh, uh, their racism towards Palestinians are in and out of government. Uh, and that much the same has happened in the United States. I mean, I look at Trump as very much a figure like George Wallace. Go back and watch George Wallace alleys. They're very similar to Trump, uh, including baiting the press and calling for violence against the press and all. And the, uh, so uh, I think the decay uh, within the Israeli body politic is kind of mirrored in the decay within the American body politic for the same reason. And that is that the brutality that our military visits on others uh, outside the country are increasing is increasingly being visited at home. Uh, and, and that's true in Israel and it's true in the United States. Yeah. One of the questions that I ask everybody that I encountered is this election any different from the previous four elections in Israel? Are the issues different? Are the players different? Should should we expect a different outcome for any reason? And people were unanimous that nothing has changed. These are the same issues. Uh, they're the same players. And it really does come down to whether or not people like Benjamin Netanyahu. So the conventional wisdom was that there's going to be yet another weak coalition government. It's going to last for a few months maybe six, eight, 12 months, whatever, and then it's going to fall apart. But it seems to me that over the long term, this is going to do real damage to things like security and equality, and that the only way to ensure the, the survival of the state of Israel is to, is to finally give equality and freedom and land and opportunity and human rights and civil liberties to the Palestinian people. And nobody wanted to talk about that. Well, that is true. And that's what made Yitzhak Rabin a kind of visionary figure. And that's why he was assassinated. Uh, but I think with the assassination of Rabin, that kind of rational response to uh, what was happening, what, ha what is happening in Israel and the occupied territories has vanished. And it is, I think, in the end, immensely self-defeating. Uh, and again, I think we live in a very self-defeating uh, political system, which is uh, essentially what uh, you know the focus of my last column uh, was. Because when you uh, essentially build uh, a political system that promotes, uh, in its own words, uh, equality and uh, um, uh, freedom, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and at the same time carries out these socioeconomic injustices uh, that uh, result in this political stagnation and income inequality, that disconnect uh, essentially extinguishes uh, your democratic system. And, uh, and so I, I think that that is what's happening in Israel, and I think that's is what is happening in the United States. If we really want to halt the rise of demagogues and right-wing figures like Trump, uh, then there are all sorts of mechanisms, including 
re-knitting the social bonds that have been ruptured by uh, neoliberal economics. But of course, Biden, look, Biden was anointed president by the hierarchy of the Democratic Party because he's uh, he has long uh, paid fealty to all the war industry and all of these policies. I, I teach in a prison. I was in a prison last night. I teach in a college program. Half of my students wouldn't be sitting in that classroom, but for Joe Biden, we forget how much pain. I'm not just Iraq, yeah. but, but what they, especially the underclass in this country, they all know who Biden is and they know what he's done. So, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, his speech was, he goes to Philadelphia and he's got these kind of weird red lights behind him, Marines, yeah. which shouldn't have been up there. And what would he offer? I mean, it was just, Fear. It was he didn't offer anything. They're not. They're not actually proposing policies that might reintegrate at this point roughly half the country back into the economy and give them any kind of stability and sense of dignity and sense of place. I mean, you go up to Maine, where my family's from. Those towns are wrecks. I mean, and that's of course typical in much of rural America. The bank in the the, the in the town my grandparents were from is boarded up. There's methamphetamine labs all over the place. I mean, you know, the country is in a tailspin. And if you want to halt the the rise of these demagogues and authoritarian figures, hate groups, then you better start responding to the real needs of the American people. And Biden's done nothing. I mean, even his most tepid campaign promises, like raising the minimum wage, he hasn't done. Chris, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you a little bit. I mean, The coverage of the war in Ukraine, to me, was strikingly irresponsible, right? Uh, But the U.S. is perpetually at war, right? So our newspaper pages could be filled with with war correspondence day in and day out. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way our wars get reported to the American people and what a, a kind of responsible war correspondence, war reporting would look like. Well... I think we first have to acknowledge that there really isn't any reporting uh, from the Ukrainian side of the war, Um, that journalists are taken out on what we used to call little two-hour dog and pony shows to get a little footage and with minders. Uh, But actual reporting, there's almost none. Uh, And I spent 20 years reporting wars. I can tell you that in war, everyone lies. Uh, The Ukrainians are lying. The Russians are lying. That's part of war. Uh, the only way to truly know what's going on is to go there. Uh, but the fact is, uh, these journalists are not going there, and they're not being particularly honest about the kind of controls that have been placed upon them. Uh, it's it's very easy to fall into this kind of cheerleading for the, the Ukrainians, this kind of binary world. Uh, I mean, CBS, for instance, had a report that only 30 percent of the weapons, once the weapons cross the borders into Ukraine— uh, they're not monitored. Nobody knows where they go. And CBS did a report that they hastily took down right. uh, that showed that uh, 70% seven, 70% of the weapons were being siphoned off to warlords and militias and, or sold who mm-hmm. knows who. But Ukraine, on the, on the corruption index, one of the most corrupt countries, in, the most country, corrupt country in Europe, but one of the most corrupt countries in the world. So none of that is surprising. But you can't report that. Uh, you you know, there's been reports of uh, uh, abuses of Russian prisoners. There's, there's been reports on the Russian side of the use of these butterfly bombs that are uh, uh, 
dropped on civilian areas. So, but all of that doesn't get out. The reporting is really an abomination. And I, I covered the first Gulf War, uh, and in which there were severe press restrictions. You have to remember that any war zone, the vast majority of the press doesn't actually want to get near the front. It's proposing as war correspondents. So, my photographers are usually a little more honest. Um, and so, in the first Gulf War, the press set up its own kind of monitoring or pool system uh, on behalf of the military. It's because they didn't really want to go out. Uh, I defied it and had my press credentials revoked. And then Dick Cheney had a list of 10 journalists he wanted expelled before the invasion, but they couldn't find me because I was sleeping out in Bedouin tents up by the border and then went into the Kuwait with the Marine Corps, who had been shafted by the Army. I mean, you know, every <laughs> it's just one more conspiracy by the Army against the Marine Corps. But I went into uh, Kuwait with 1st Battalion, 1st Marines. So uh, that that is what I find so distressing about the coverage. It's this deep, it's deep dishonesty in the way that the press is allowing itself to be manipulated. And I'm not excusing the Russians. I'm sure they're doing the same thing. But the, 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 the manipulation, I don't think the American public is aware of the extent of the manipulation and the, and the complicity of the press in, in, in passing what, is, in essence, is propaganda, not journalism. Forgive me, we have a hard break at the top of the hour, so I'm going to let you go. That was the voice of author and journalist Chris Hedges. Chris is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who is a former Middle East bureau chief for The New York Times. Highly decorated. He's also written for Truthdig, and his work now appears on Substack. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have another hour. We bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. And we're going to talk uh, for a couple of minutes about uh, the mayor of D.C.'s new emergency declaration to deal with the thousands of migrants who are being bused to the city from Arizona and Texas. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser has declared a public emergency uh, to deal with these flows. Uh, Arizona and Texas, of course, are busing migrants to Washington, D.C. and New York City as a protest by those states' governors against Joe Biden's border policies. Uh, I've seen different estimates as to the number of people who have arrived since April, uh, but they seem to between 9,000 and 11,000 people having arrived in the U.S. Capitol. And there is no sign uh, that Arizona and Texas are going to stop this process. Uh, most of the migrants who come through D.C. leave for another state, but mutual aid volunteers and nonprofit staff estimate that 10 to 15 percent of people decide to stay here because they don't have anywhere else to go. This is according to uh, DCist reporting. Bowser says that as a result, the city faces a growing humanitarian crisis. She has asked for the National Guard to be activated. Her request has been denied uh, with the explanation that the Guard is not uh, appropriately trained to handle this situation. Uh, but so what this emergency declaration will let her do is set up an office of migrant services that can coordinate 
between the different bodies that are helping to greet, process, potentially resettle, uh, and, and handle the needs of these migrants. I believe it has an initial allocated budget of $10 million. The initial public emergency will last 15 days. Bowser expects to extend it. We are going to talk about what this means, both for Washington, D.C., and what it says about our immigration policy as a whole with Mark Schmueli. He's a local immigration attorney. He's immediate past chair of the Federal Bar Association's Immigration Law Section. And through Sanctuary DMV, he has been providing on-call legal advice and been welcoming and orienting some of these migrants who have been arriving by bus in D.C. So, Mark, thank you for being here. Thank you, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing great. I, I want to know, first of all, how how much this uh, state of emergency and this possible influx of funding is going to help the organizations who are meeting uh, these migrants? Well, I mean, it's it's late. Um, it's I mean, it, money is always good. I think there's one of the uh, issues within the community is, when the government gets involved is um, uh, how much that um, uh, can People in the community, especially the mutual—I mean, the mutual aid aspect of the community—is is great because it meets people where they are. And often, you know, the government will find housing nowhere near transportation to somebody's work, and mm-hmm. people just fuck that or lose a job. I mean, these are the kinds of things that happen on the ground logistically that are problematic. Um, and often, when you have somebody who is, you know, officially given the role of being a decider because they're getting money from. Uh, uh, a city government in this case, um, then um, then that can be problematic. If if the mutual aid folks are really involved, and uh, then it can really work well. Otherwise, you know, it could have its its, its issues, and that's that's part of it. And I, and I just uh, we don't know exactly how this office will be set up because mm-hmm. we we've all seen offices that try to you know make a difference, and then all of a sudden it's not difference isn't made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also, I mean, this move has gotten a lot of attention, uh, particularly uh, in the right-wing press. And I do wonder if, to some extent, not that it, it shouldn't have been done, but if it is helping uh, Greg Abbott make his point, right? I Clearly, I do not like the Texas governor, and I don't think that the U.S. should should block migrant flows. But if cities like D.C. and cities the size of New York City are having trouble managing uh, the people who are being bused here. And again, this is voluntary, right? So I don't think it represents uh, certain the majority of people who are crossing the border. Um, is there something bigger to pay attention to? D.C. Council Member Brianne Nadeau made some comments that got a lot of attention uh, that the governors of Texas and Arizona have turned D.C. into a border town. Um, I think that, you know, the fact that D.C. and New York are struggling should probably, uh, you know, send some sympathy towards some of these towns that are smaller, that maybe have fewer resources, uh, that are also trying to to manage. And so I wonder, you know, do border towns also need more federal funding? Do they need more attention? Is this one of the lessons we need to take from uh, this political stunt? Well, no, I mean— Absolutely. And that was one of the, in, in the 2013 immigration bill in Congress, that was one of the, um, that was one of the first times that we heard of, of Beto O'Rourke, because he, he led the opposition to the final bill, um, which failed in the House, uh, because he said that, you know, because the, the final thing they, uh, that was put in as a compromise 
to get an overwhelming majority in the Senate was to, uh, but I believe it was 20,000 additional, maybe it was 60, I don't know the number uh, exactly, but a, a, a huge amount of border patrol, uh, extra border patrol on the border. And, you know, anybody who's been to these towns has been to his, his city of El Paso, which I have. Um, it, it's, it, they're militarized zones. And what he was saying is this ruins the communities. It, it creates that. And that's what I think people around the country, and, and that's what this comment says. I don't know the, the uh, context of the comment or what was meant, you know, or how it, it was taken, but that's, that's very common is people look at the, at the border. And, in, and on that very limited way, you're right. I mean, it, Greg Abbott's point, if you take it for what it is, um, you know, but as, as usual, uh, it, it's more of an attack on places that are sanctuaries to try to show that they don't work. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's not done in good faith. And I think actually, uh, surprisingly, uh, the best response publicly just in the media on both conservative media and, you know, uh, right-wing media, uh, basic media, you know, uh, the left doesn't have them on a lot, but Eric Adams has spoken publicly really well about this and been concise. And he's basically said, you know, you, you, you didn't, um, you know, if you don't care about them, we will. And this is what sanctuary means. We, you know, we don't let people go on house mm-hmm. and that's it. We don't let people go on house and we figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I, I do, I am concerned with DC. Um, the, the, the sort of, uh, it comes across as catastrophizing. It comes across as histrionic. Um, and I, I kind of like his very calm term, but Hey, we need help too. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with opening up the office. There's nothing wrong with saying, okay, we need this help. This mm-hmm. is, because that was happening before anyway. There were inflows of immigrants. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know how often Greg Abbott, you know, leaves Texas, but I would say that to him, like, look, you're not the only state that gets immigrants. This right. They come across the border to you. They've been coming to D.C. You know, we have probably uh, per capita more Central Americans in, this, in the DMV than he does in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and he can, um, you know, look, I mean, the problem with, with it is that you've got these guys that have been really crappy governors that have not served their people. And so, I mean, they've been really bad. I mean, Texas is, is you know, they can't deal with any any inf- any infrastructure issues like they had last year where the power grid went down. Mm-hmm. And, and there is no... Any storms will hit. I mean, he has their public school system. I mean, his his state is falling apart. Arizona, the water crisis in Arizona is is really, you know, it, it, it's it's bad. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're sending them too. So this is really, um, uh, they they're dealing with real environmental catastrophes, and you know, blaming immigrants coming in and population stuff is is not um I, I don't know how it's going to resonate but it's not um you know it, it it's not something that uh 
addresses anything else. I mean, of course, if I was Greg Abbott or if I was the governor of Arizona, I would say, yes, we have all these problems. We need all of our state resources to deal with the problems we have, regardless of how responsible we might be for having created or facilitated them and say, again, we need more we need more federal support. Right. Which is, again, this is a political stunt. But it's I think it's very possible that the need for more attention from the Biden administration and more federal support for that seems likely to be real. Oh, I agree. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, like a lot of things, uh, you know, with the this administration, they were a little bit slow to the uptick. Mm -hmm. And they and they didn't understand, you know, and and part of it was they were fighting Title 42. I I Mm -hmm. but really and part of it is that those you know they they those communities are trained the states are hostile to them, particularly Texas. Mm -hmm. They have been hostile, so they're really difficult to work with. I mean, you know, that's the thing with these, you know, authoritarian, conservative, right-wing, you know, governors is that they just, they don't work with, with uh, a democratic administration, you know, no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. They just don't. And then we see that in Mississippi right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's really difficult because if the federal government gives money to the state, will they really use it to construct, um, you know, a, a, a housing, deliver food, and serve the people there? Mm -hmm. Or will they use it to deputize their own police, which is what he was saying to do? So it's really tricky. Right. I mean, you could say the Biden administration has an opportunity with D.C. and New York, who, uh, you know, both cities that have Democratic Democratic mayors, has an opportunity to show what it could be like if the federal government was uh, responding to these needs and working with partners who are willing to work with them. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, remember, I mean, Abbott got in also a little bit of trouble because he was stopping um, commerce from coming across. Mm -hmm. And, you know, generally the guys driving trucks to bring, you know, things across the border are not, um, you know, you you have a decent amount of of his supporters pre that, or certainly Trump supporters, uh, you know, in that demographic. and. Certainly, you know, owning the businesses, owning the stores, owning the shops, you're, you're, you're basically attacking the economy of your own state. Mm-hmm. And and that's really, you know, the backdrop of what he's saying. And there is no um, and, and he's you know, he's not actually dealing with anybody um, outside of uh, uh, outside of himself. I mean, he's not I mean, right now, Adams, I know, has a, um, a delegation that he's sending down there uh, to see what's going on. And they're meeting with the Border Patrol. And, you know, we'll see what comes from that. We'll see what they actually come back saying. Um, I I think it's a wild card. Uh, It's kind of a wild card. We'll see. Mm -hmm. I also want to ask, you know, much is being made of the fact that D.C., uh, it has called itself a sanctuary city. Uh, and, you know, people are saying, look, you want to be a sanctuary city. And then as soon as you start getting these inflows of migrants, you, you know, suddenly it's an emergency. But, you know, of course, sanctuary city generally means uh, that local law enforcement is discouraged from reporting the immigration status of people they encounter unless those people are accused of a very serious crime. And it sort of describes a city that attempts to keep local law enforcement separate from ICE, right? Separate from working with ICE, doing the work of ICE, being deputized for ICE. And I wonder, uh, is there any way that separation could 
proved to be an obstacle now, right? I don't usually on this show discuss ICE as being part of any kind of solution uh, when it comes to migration. Uh, but I wonder if maybe I'm I'm missing something here. Well, you know, when, when I was on uh, the governor's commission studying the impact of immigrants on Maryland uh, back in 2012, we when we concluded, I, I wrote the chapter of the uh, report to the governor on uh, the recommendations. Uh, I, that was the one that I headed up the um, on recommendations mm-hmm. on policing, and we and we recommended very strongly. Um, and, you know, after hearing from counties uh, like Frederick, which uh, were uh, deputizing ICE in counties like Montgomery, um, which were not. Mm-hmm. And uh, we recommended not that the state not do that um, for a host of reasons. For one, I mean, the police don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really kills um, any uh, confidence in the community. And, you know, you make it so that um, you make it so that, you know, the, the crime actually will go up. And, P- and because it just won't go reported. Um, and so that's, that's uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, it's bad enough that there, any convictions would get reported and that it's a much higher bar for immigrants uh, uh, with the, the criminal code is much worse in, in when it's interpreted under immigration law. But um, there, there, that's not, I mean, ICE really has no no role here. I mean, unless there is something, look, nobody wants to see people traffic. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to see fentanyl coming into their community. And nobody wants to see, um, you know, a, a lot of the things that, you know, Border Patrol ICE um, are charged with stopping. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to see that. But, and certainly, and there's, and nobody, there is no, that's one of the myths of the, um, I mean, I, I worked in Howard County in, in Maryland on, that with the and the chief of police was you know telling me his testimony when he testified sort of against each other but we talked before and and I told him what are your sources there are people within ICE that are informing Congress about you know the the what these sanctuary cities won't do and there is nobody uh, who if there is a if there is a uh, trafficking uh, international trafficking uh, ring going on in their county that they will not. Uh, report on the criminal part. And mm-hmm. the fact that somebody is not, you know, in the United States with authorization, uh, ICE can figure that out if, they, if the trafficking part gets resolved. It, it's a complete, um, you know, uh, Trojan horse. It's a complete red herring. And it's very, uh, it's dangerous the way that that gets reported because um, it is not as if, believe me, ICE is allowed in the communities. Mm-hmm. ICE can, they just won't, uh, you know, they will not uh, enforce immigration law, and because they're not, not their local law enforcement won't enforce immigration law because it's not their purview, right? Um, I, I want to ask just quickly, again, this goes back to comments by Nadeau, who said the, the governors of Texas and Arizona have created this crisis. Certainly, they have created, uh, you know, an emergency for, for Washington, D.C. and New York. But I, I wondered, you know, they didn't create the crisis at the border. And I wonder where you think people um, 
you know, wh- where do you think fingers should be pointed when we are looking at, uh, you know, migration still uh, really high? I mean, again, I, I hate having conversations where this is treated as a problem, but it is a problem to the extent that, you know, people are, are waiting in dangerous conditions. People uh, aren't being, you know, people are being held in dangerous conditions. People are drowning as they are trying to cross the Rio Grande, as happened uh, last week. Um, so, you know, where where does the blame lie? You mean as far as why people are coming or? I suppose both why people are coming and why we can't manage to, uh, why we can never seem to really handle uh, the number of migrants we, we see. Well, I mean, par- part of it is because it was shut for, for a while. And so there were people there, mm-hmm. um, but also because I, I, I think the conditions in Central America have, have become that much more violent, have become, I mean, we see how much, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the violence in El Salvador, both by the state and uh, within the uh, gangs, et cetera, is forcing people north. And, and also people from, you know, a, a around the world that can come through Mexico. I mean, part of it is, you know, it, I mean, that was one thing Trump tried to do was to make have Mexico uh, uh, be, have his, enact his policies, basically. And they weren't going to do that necessarily. So people are coming through. I mean, people are going to go. Where they where it's safe. Um, I think I think also it's it's not. Um, I think there's a crisis. I think a lot of it's manufactured. I mean, I I do I don't think there's a lack of housing. There certainly is not a lack of work uh, for people, um, and there's certainly uh, uh, not a lack of um, work to be done. I mean, people that are coming to D.C. that I'm meeting, they ask me. They'll ask me questions like. What's Mississippi like? There's jobs there. I'm sure there are jobs in Kentucky. So what? It, I mean, mm-hmm. if I mean, it's interesting because I mean, I know it was you know there was a lot of corruption in the plan and never went through. But you know, Trump talked about a massive national infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no question that uh, that that needs to be done, and that the uh, and that. You know, it used to be the Republican thing. They always used to see labor shortages and always want to import workers. Even, you know, that was their policy up until, you know, Gingrich and that crew, up until really the mid-90s. That was their policy. Um, And, you know, it wasn't with a lot of it was to undercut labor unions and to pay less. And that's its own issue. But that certainly was the, the political dynamic then. Because it's it's there. I mean, when you're dealing with, um, I mean, it's 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 the advent of white supremacy, so that um, really is. I mean, I, I see nothing around that. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and I think, I mean, really, that's what's on the ballot. Mm-hmm. That's really what's on the ballot in these elections, and that's what they're running on. Um, so yeah, I mean, the the conditions in Central America are are worsening because. Um, you know, we've, we've supported governments that are exploitative. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's bad. It's that are exploitative that yeah. are not, um, you know, promoting, uh, um, you know, n- not just promoting democracy as a, as a concept, but also promoting, you know, localized grassroots businesses and, and, uh, employment and, uh, communities. Mm-hmm that would make it so that people are going to be able to, to, to live mm-hmm. and support themselves and sustain themselves. 
Mark Shmueli, sorry, we're out of time. That was immigration attorney Mark Shmueli. He has been working with the Sanctuary DMV to provide on-call legal advice and uh, to orient immigrants who are arriving by bus in the capital. Uh, Mark, where should people go to find more about Sanctuary DMV? Um, well, they can go on to the uh, Sanctuary DMV website, which I think I gave it to you guys last night. I don't have it offhand. Um, I bet if you just Google Sanctuary DMV, you can find it. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk some politics. We are on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. We are now less than two months away from the midterm elections, and the numbers are improving a little for Democrats, although maybe not enough to keep control of the House of Representatives. On the Senate side, if the election were to be held today, Democrats would pick up seats in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and maybe Wisconsin. They would hold tight seats in Arizona, New Hampshire, and Nevada. They could pick up a seat in Wisconsin, and they could lose a seat in Georgia, both of which are actually too close to call. On the House side, though, the Washington Post, 538.com, and Political Politico all project a narrow Republican takeover, based primarily on redistricting and gerrymandering. Republicans need a pickup of only five seats to take control, and they're projected at this early stage to pick up between 10 and 20 seats. We'll talk about what that means for policy and for legislation. We're joined by Ray Valencia. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Welcome, Ray. Yeah, I'm here. Ray, pundits are saying that the GOP has a GOP problem. I said this yesterday, but I love it so much I have to repeat it. GOP, they're saying, stands for Georgia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. which are increasingly tough for Republicans. In Georgia, Herschel Walker has pulled to within one percentage point of Senator Raphael Warnock in the latest poll. But the latest poll is by Trafalgar Group, which is a Republican pollster. In Ohio, Representative Tim Ryan is beating up on author and investor J.D. Vance and leading him by an insane 10 percentage points. And in Pennsylvania, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is leading TV quack Dr. Oz by six percentage points. Uh, there is some shifting going on in that race. Uh, Give us your thoughts on each of these races. Which direction are they moving? Let's start with Georgia. Okay, so Brian Kemp is ahead. And I think a lot of that could be attributed to the incumbency. He's very popular. In the the gubernatorial race. Yeah, in the gubernatorial race in Georgia, right? So he's ahead. And I think he's he's more liked maybe than... um, uh, Democrats like, uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm Stacey Abrams, right? Mm-hmm. So more Stacey Republicans Abrams, like Kemp right? than Democrats like Stacey Abrams. So we're hoping for some kind of coattail effect. You know, you have the governor on the ballot, you have the Senate. So will this help or hurt Warnock or Herschel? That's to be undetermined. But there's this gap, right? I mean, Warnock's ahead mm-hmm. and Kemp's ahead. So how does mm-hmm. that get reconciled? 
I don't really know how does that get reconciled. So, you know, I keep thinking about what are the important issues to voters that have been showing up in the polls, right? The economy is the leading one. But then abortion has been rising ever since the drop of the Dobbs decision, right? And I've been looking at trends of voter registration, and it's just wild because, you know, the gender gap in voter registration historically, well, since the 1980s, has been about one to two percent more women than men. But since the Dobbs decision has dropped, these margins have widened. And in Georgia, it's like eight to 10 percent. So I don't know how this shakes out. Georgia has a highly restrictive abortion law. So the role of the governor there is going to be very important. I don't know how much of an impact that's going to have going into the fall elections. I anticipate that it will have an increasingly greater impact as the economy looks to be stabilizing. Biden's numbers are improving. I think that the student loan debt relief is a big deal for voters. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are impacted by this. Many are not. Um, But, you know, I think about a lot of people in my predicament, right? I have an undergrad degree, $40,000 of student loan debt. I was a Pell Grant recipient. I have a disability. All these things are, there's debt relief on all these levels, right? So people are doing the math on that. The Inflation Reduction Act is going to save homeowners a lot of money as they upgrade their homes. There's a lot of tax rebates in there. So if households are doing the math like I've been doing the math over the last couple of weeks, uh, things could continue to improve for polls in the polls for Democrats. I get a lot of automated emails from Mm -hmm. Senator Catherine Cortez Masto's Mm -hmm. campaign saying that she's in danger of losing the seat to state attorney general Adam Laxalt. Mm -hmm. But the polls have her up by six points and she has strong support among organized labor. Even if, and I'm fascinated by this, even if her support among Hispanics is declining, and she's Hispanic, and Mm -hmm. Laxalt is not, what do you think is going on in that race? Well, I understand that, you know, the Hispanics are really going to determine the outcome of this race. Uh, That's what's being reported by local press there. But she's continuing to lose support among Hispanics. So, you know, there's pressure there. Also, you know, if you're going to look at abortion, it's not as significant of an issue for Nevadans because uh, there's a 24-week, you know, restriction there. So that's pretty close to where they were with Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. So I don't mm-hmm. think the abortion issue is going to help any Democrats in Nevada. Uh, I understand that Mastro has outraised Luxart by two to one. So Mm -hmm. if the money is any indicator, you know, maybe she maintains her lead there. Uh, I think Nevada is definitely it's more purple when you say, John, I mean, you know, yeah, I I would. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really looking at how Hispanics, you know, what that's going to how that's going to fall out as we get closer. But can we go back can to I, Ohio? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, can I just jump in with my le- less expert opinion on, uh, I'm just looking at Catherine Cortez Masto's, you know, about Catherine, and it just seems like another instance where uh, you have a, a Democrat who is trying to just out Republican the Republican. And I don't see, you know, it's about yeah. her work as a prosecutor, uh, working with law enforcement to keep communities safe, breaking up sex trafficking rings. I, are they trying to say, like, oh, you can't do the QAnon thing to me? There's nothing here about 
uh, I, I don't see very much about uh, economics. I don't see very much about the minimum wage. And I do think like uh, expecting some kind of racial solidarity or ethnic solidarity right. is a really dangerous game. And I do think what does appeal to, uh, you know, to minorities who are disproportionately the working class is to appeal to their economic interests, just like everyone else. And that, I think, is, you know, I don't know what the outcome of this race is going to be, but if I was worried about that vote, I might not be talking so much about my uh, my law and order credentials, and I might be talking more about, uh, you know, economic needs in the state. Yeah. Oh, I think you've hit it on the head. Um, you know, it, it, Hispanics in the United States— um, vote less as a block than any other ethnic group. They vote on the issues. And a lot of Hispanics are very conservative. Even though they might be Democrats, uh, they're very conservative. And they're very happy to split tickets and uh, and to vote for uh, people who are not Hispanic if their personal ideology is more in line with that candidate. Mm-hmm. So I think you're exactly right. I think uh, Cortez Masto cannot rely on the fact that she just happens to be Hispanic. I think she shouldn't rely on the fact that she is pro-cop and law and order and all this other silliness. I think that she should be talking without stopping about a $15 minimum wage and the support that she has uh, from organized labor. But I suspect I think- also that she and Stacey Abrams are are uh, losing a little bit from the two years of a Biden administration that made yeah. a lot of such promises and yeah. has only very recently started to deliver in a limited fashion. And Agreed. I wonder if that is a little bit, they're like, okay, here's another Democrat, you know, in a high profile way, promising us some things that, you know, we thought we would have seen already. Fulfill. Right. But we've yes. been talking about, you know, do something if you mm-hmm. want to uh, have turnout because the concern was, well, turnout will be suppressed, right? Well, things are, they did something, right? So turnout could be better if the polls are indicating that because Biden's uh, approval numbers are improving Mm -hmm. somewhat. And assuming that trend holds, you know, the others could rise, too. So it's a possibility. And I agree. I think that there needs to be more emphasis on the working class and higher minimum wage. And one thing the uh, Inflation Reduction Act did is it's going to tax stock buyback programs. Well, isn't that nice? But, you know, companies have a choice in their retained earnings, whether they— Distribute this money to tax uh, to in dividends or whether they buy stock back. But you know they could do another thing; they can ex- they can increase their expenses by paying more wages. Wouldn't that mm-hmm. be a good idea? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm all for that. Let's raise the minimum wage. Yeah. You were um, going to say something, Ray, about uh, Ohio. Ohio. Well, I wanted to get to Pennsylvania first, if we could, Mm -hmm. just so we don't run out of time. So Pennsylvania is very interesting, right? Because Fetterman is back on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. And there's some controversy now about the debate, right? Oz wants a debate. Um, Fetterman's recovering from a stroke. He wants, you know, some condition. I guess he's suffering from an auditory processing problem, whatever that means exactly. He's mixing up He's mixing up words. He's mixing up words. Yeah, which... and his campaign says this is not a sign of any physical or mental mm-hmm. mental impairment. There's not a cognitive issue. It's a language production issue. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's going to be tough, I think, to stand up and do a live debate if you are not sure that you're not going to be missing, mixing words up every 
every couple of sentences. Yeah, and Oz is pretty quick. Mm-hmm. You know, he's quick-witted. I think he, he has a really kind of fast speech pattern. And so I don't know, John, what do you think? I'm a little concerned. Uh, to tell you the truth, if I were John Fetterman, Fetterman, I wouldn't debate. Mm-hmm. You're already ahead in the polls, maybe too far ahead for Oz to catch up. And um, debating Oz, especially if you're having these auditory processing problems, only helps Oz. Mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't do it. You'd stay out of it, right? Just, just like in Georgia, if I were Herschel Walker, mm-hmm. I wouldn't debate uh, Raphael Warnock because no. Herschel Walker can't put five words together to make a sentence. He's just going to make himself look stupid in a debate. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I've yeah. been thinking about. It's going to be interesting. Is there agreeing to one debate? And yeah. So that's right. what I'm thinking about Georgia is that um, Ohio. Okay. J.D. Vance. I think yeah. abortion could be a big deal in Ohio, right? Very highly restrictive is. abortion rules there. I don't think that's going to help J.D. Vance. And also the the gender gap in that state's pretty wide, too, in terms of uh, women registering to vote in the droves. So I can't imagine them going to the polls to vote for J.D. Vance. But uh, we'll see. I, I, I think he's in trouble. Yeah. And, and I, I think Mitch McConnell thinks he's in trouble because McConnell has been on the phone over the past week with Peter Thiel Mm. asking Thiel to match what the Republican senatorial campaign committee is sending to J.D. Vance, and Thiel has refused to do it. So uh, Mm. McConnell says that the party hierarchy, the party itself, is going to send $28 million to be spent on advertising in these last seven weeks for J.D. Vance. And it shows you how worried they are about losing this race. And haven't the Republicans blown through like most of their money already? Yeah, the Democrats have double what the Republicans have right now to spend on advertising. Okay, so here is the billboard ad that Democrats need to run all across the country. Are you ready? It's really simple. (laughs) Okay, so on one side, you have a picture of the Supreme Court. And then on the other side, you have a picture of Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell. And on the bottom, it just says vote. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, sure. I think that's that's for sure going to be uh, one of the biggest galvanizing factors here. You have to wonder what role the possibility of ballot initiatives plays in that. Because if you have a ballot initiative that you can vote on, it takes some of the pressure off of, uh, you know, needing to vote with the party that at least says they will try to protect abortion rights most of the time with a few exceptions like Henry Cuellar and in Texas uh, and a few others. Uh, And, you know, I I support whatever mechanism uh, helps people in their states preserve uh, abortion rights. Um, But, it would be interesting if that, you know, we we sort of see the Democrats get some wind in their sails after this decision. But if everyone finds out a way they can actually just vote directly on the issue, maybe that yeah. takes some of the, the uh, momentum away. But the ballot measure will be on the same ticket, mm-hmm. right, as, you know, so like here in Kansas, when they went to the polls just to vote on abortion, the gender gap was like 40 percent. Mm-hmm. Other states where there's other things on the ballot. You know, it's 18, 17 percent in Wisconsin. But I can't imagine you're going to go to the polls and you're an independent woman. Maybe you're an independent Republican. Mm-hmm. Cause that's where uh, the Democrats have really been gaining on this issue. OK, is the 
independent Republican women. So I can't imagine you're going to go vote on abortion and then go vote for the governor that would want the most restrictive conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, mommy, yeah. maybe not in extreme situations, yeah. but like they did that in Florida with Trump where they voted at the, you know, to raise the minimum wage, to give mm-hmm. fe- felons, uh, return the right, right to, to vote, vote. To, to felons and also for Donald <laughs> Trump to be president. Mm-hmm. So yeah, sometimes it could be a split. Sure. Our American politics is very fractured. It feels like it is very fractured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Ray, tell us a little bit about what's going on in uh, Arizona. Uh, we know that these that the Republican nominees for governor and for U.S. Senate are intensely conservative, MAGA, pro-Trump Republicans, but they've scrubbed references to Trump and to abortion off of their websites. What's oh, going yeah. on? I think the uh, well, Arizona is a highly restrictive abortion law. OK. And what's interesting to me is Carrie Lake, right? She's this really kind of um, well-articulated uh, MAGA kind of candidate on the ticket. And she wants to debate. And Katie Holmes, here's another debate situation, right? Katie Holmes does not want to debate her. I think she feels that she'll get overrun by uh, Carrie Lake. And then there's talk among the local press in Arizona that if Carrie Lake were to win the governorship in Arizona, that she may be a contender in 2024. Oh, oh, come on. Isn't that wild? People people are actually <laughs> saying that? Yeah, people, that's what the local press, I've been like listening to local newscasts, reading through the Arizona press. And oh. so she has a really high likability among Republicans. She's, <laughs> she's. Physically attractive. Yes. And she's been on <laughs> Fox News for insane. years, right? She's insane. Yeah. Right. And the Secretary of State, what's his name? Uh, Fincham? Fincham? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he's so wild that even the MAGA Republicans are kind of apprehensive about him, you know. Uh, but And Mark Kelly's leading so far in the polls. And it was really interesting to hear a, a recent interview with Chuck Todd from Meet the Press, who's talking to some local reporters, and they were saying how... A lot of Republicans, many independent Republicans like Mark Kelly, there's a um, a large group of LDS, uh, you know, within the Republican yes. Party, and they really admire Mark Kelly. And so a lot of people are projecting that Carrie Lake could win the governorship and that Mark Kelly could win the Senate. Senate seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Right. Uh, let's see. A- approval ratings for the Supreme Court. I, I thought this mm. was fascinating because you really rarely see mm-hmm. uh, polls taken about the Supreme Court. But approval ratings for the Supreme Court are 28 percent among Democrats and 40 percent among Republicans. Those numbers are lower than at any point since the advent of polling. 538 says that this is helping Democrats, especially in Senate races, because it's the Senate that approves judges, including Supreme Court justices. And 538 also says that it's resulted in a turnaround in the generic congressional numbers, uh, polling numbers, moving from Republicans plus two to Democrats plus four. Do you think Democrats have a campaign issue here? Does the court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade have legs nationwide like it might in some of these um, these close states? I think it has more legs in states that have the highest restrictions on abortion. 
that's where you're going to see the highest turnout among women and independent voters on on that. But uh, I think that it could have a coattail effect. You know, you like I was explaining to Michelle, you go to vote on, you know, abortion. You're not going to vote for the guy that's going to overturn it, overturn your access to it. So, yeah, I think it's going to continue to have a great deal of weight on politics. And it's really going to you know, it's. We're coming up against the issue of the economy, too. Those are the two main competing issues, the economy and abortion. So how well the economy holds up over the next several months or the next two months going into the midterms, I think could be important. Uh, Michelle, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have a final thought on Georgia. Just an interesting little tidbit that I, uh, I found today. But I know you wanted to say something very important about Bernie Sanders and some new legislation. Oh, yeah. This is what I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, the Mountain Valley Pipeline. It's getting some attention because Senator Bernie Sanders said yesterday he was going to vote against a spending bill to keep the government going because every year, oh, what a surprise to get to the end of September and the government needs more money. Um, He is going to vote against it, uh, along with dozens of members of of the House, he says, um, if it includes this language that was apparently, well, it's either put as it was promised to Joe Manchin or it was a promise that it would be discussed to Joe Manchin in the negotiations for getting the uh, Inflation Reduction Act passed. And this language is about, uh, quote unquote, streamlining the permitting process for energy projects and specifically about jamming the Mountain Valley pipeline through. So this is all about what Democrats had to do to get Joe Manchin on board with the Inflation Reduction Act. And part of that negotiation was promising, again, either going, yeah, we'll talk about it with their fingers crossed, or basically uh, other reports say Schumer said, we're going to put this in the funding bill. Don't worry about it. Um, Changes in the permitting project for energy projects, um, including steps to help the Mountain Valley pipeline be completed. This is a pipeline we've talked about on the show uh, quite a lot uh, last year. It's a 303-mile pipeline that would go from West Virginia to Southern Virginia. Uh, There may be plans to extend it as far as North Carolina. It has been challenged every step of the way by people who are living in the communities that it will cross because it— uh, threatens aquifers. Water sources have had to be blown up. You know, like any like any uh, massive energy project, it's incredibly destructive, and then it poses a threat to these communities as long as it's operational. Uh, the pipeline itself seems like something of a boondoggle anyway. Uh, it has racked up hundreds of citations. It has lost permits. It has failed to get other permits. It's over budget. It's overdue. The project operators have been doing what energy project operators do all the time, which is to say month after month, year after year, we're 90% complete. We're 94% complete when they are not, right? Um, and so... It seemed to really be on the ropes last year when it lost a couple of key um, permit fights, but it finally got uh, from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, it finally got a key permit extension that it needed, and now Manchin wants to be able to leapfrog other processes and make sure this this pet project goes through. And so uh, these reforms that Manchin wants to be included in this, uh, you know, must-pass doing some air quotes there, must-pass spending bill, were described in a letter signed by 650 environmental and civic organizations as legislation that would 
truncate and hollow out the environmental review process, weaken tribal consultations, and make it harder for frontline communities to have their voices heard by gutting bedrock protections in the National Environmental Policy Act and the Clean Water Act. So this is what this is what was promised to Joe Manchin to get him to support the Inflation Reduction Act. But that is a done deal, you know? And so do you really need to give this to Manchin, especially if it was just a sort of like, we'll right. talk about it. We'll see. We'll see if right. we can get it through. I don't know. Um, uh, tribal consultation also, that was one of the uh, steps forward the Biden administration really has made when it comes to uh, energy projects and native communities, right? There's uh, as there's always a lot to criticize about any administration, um, but there have been some small positive steps and making the consultation process a little bit more robust has been something that's been good. And so if, you know, you you give this to Joe Manchin after you've already got his, uh, you know, you've got his cooperation, you've got your bill passed, that seems just uh, absolutely, it seems unnecessary. Stab Joe Manchin in the back. I mean, I don't know what the long-term political consequences would be, but so Bernie Sanders is very upset about this. There are a bunch of House Democrats who are upset about this, saying we're not going to let you slide through uh, really backwards um, legislation that's going to have a negative impact on the climate at this moment uh, just to get the spending deal passed. So we'll see. Of course, the person getting the criticism is Bernie Sanders for not being a team player because, uh, you know— you're never supposed to look at the fine print, I guess. Right. Right. You know, I hate the way that Bernie Sanders has been screwed by the Democrats mm-hmm. over the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish him the best on this. He deserves a break. I wanted to say one one more thing before we go to news of the weird. Um, I read the most interesting article today about computer modeling. It said that Democrats have a 70 percent chance of holding the Senate. But if Raphael Warnick beats Herschel Walker in Georgia, that chance increases to 91%. Georgia right now is the closest race in the country, and it has arguably the weakest Republican nominee. Walker, like I said a minute ago, he can barely string five words together to make a coherent sentence. But Russia is Russia, but Georgia Mm -hmm. is deeply conservative. Mm -hmm. And things... Uh, I mean, Russia, too. Yeah. yeah and Russia is very conservative. Yeah. And Russia has been... The, the Russian Orthodox Church is very conservative. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to point that out. I thought it was a fascinating article yeah. and really control of the Senate for the Democrats rests on the state of Georgia. It's incredible that it's even close. Yeah. With Herschel really Walker. With Herschel Walker. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it really makes, uh, you know, and uh, other people have made this point, but the comparisons between Warnock and, and Walker and Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, it's it's not really fair. Like, Brian Kemp is a, is a functional human <laughs> being, you know. Brian Kemp is, ra- right. can, yeah. can p- sound rational and has a, you know, a, a, a history of business and, you know, just doesn't seem, he's just not making the insane statements that Herschel Walker is making day in and day out. Yeah, No, he's not. He's not. Uh, We've got 10 minutes left in the show, and I want to switch over to news of the weird without going to a break, if that's okay with the two of you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's Friday, and at the end of the show on Friday, we love to do news of the weird. There are some of these offbeat stories that we find all over the place, and there are a couple of really good ones today. So I wanted to start in the state of Georgia. Cleveland, Georgia, is home to a place called Babyland General Hospital. 
But it says don't go there with a broken finger or to deliver a human infant. I'm going to say hospital. I'm going to stop you, John, and just say, because this is the one I accidentally read. Don't go there. Just do not go there. This is honestly a trigger warning. (laughs) Don't don't go there. It's a fake hospital. It's actually a toy store where fans of Cabbage Patch dolls can witness a birth, as they're calling it, as the nurse calls out dilation updates. Mm, that's now, listen, weird. I have five kids. I have five kids, and I've been in the I've been in the delivery room with four of them. So I, I know the dilation updates. It's uh, intense. Mm. But these dilation updates are like, Five leaves apart, seven leaves apart, nine leaves apart. This is... And they even announced the necessity for a leaveectomy. What? Or a leviotomy. <gasps> like an episiotomy. That's no, horrifying. That's awful. Not... I just feel like this should... I, I don't, am I a fuddy-duddy? That's, don't <laughs> trivialize true. that. And, and finally, the cabbage ball <laughs> is born. Ugh. Um, Shoppers who want to adopt a new book, a new doll have to sign adoption papers. You which buy they've always it. Done. You buy the doll. Yep. You're not adopting it. <laughs> but listen to this. The store's guarantee says if your doll becomes damaged, you can send it back. And if it can't be repaired, they'll send you a coffin and a death certificate so you can lay it to rest. Wow. That's I didn't. Once I realized I was reading something that I really like to get cold, I stopped. So I didn't see that last line. Everything about this is so disturbing. Cabbage Patch kids are back. This is like from the 80s. Yeah, exactly. I had a Cabbage Patch doll. I gave it a bath one time and (laughs) weighed 50 pounds and filled with mold immediately because they never dried. Manufacturing these things. Is that why they're back? I mean, what's bringing them back? I really want to know, like, what is the annual the annual visitor numbers for this horrifying place. I'm going to see if I can look that up real quick, John, while you tell me the next one. This is just insane. And how long has this been open? Apparently for a long time. One woman said that she is just glad to know that this, this place is as odd and as terrifying as she remembers it to be. So that, to me, what I took from that is that this thing's been open for a long time. Yeah. It's too weird. Man, that's weird. Yeah. Nope. That's nope. Uh, I mean, no. Hard no to that one. Yeah. No, hard no. You, you might also like to hear that uh, after a two-year hiatus because of COVID, the World Gravy Wrestling Championships are back. Okay. They this is much better. They were to Lancashire, England last week. This is according to the BBC. It says that during the contest, entrants grapple in a pool of gravy for two minutes to raise money for the East Lancashire Hospice. Uh, Carol Lowe, restaurant manager of the Rose and Bowl Pub, where the event takes place, says people come from all over the world and the atmosphere was, quote, absolutely bouncing. Competitors are encouraged to, to don fancy dress and they're also graded on their entertainment value. It's very messy, and they raise a lot of money for the for the hospital. Is that it, sounds what great. What kind of gravy is it? Is it brown gravy? Is it? It, it must <laughs> be brown. White gravy, gravy sounds white pretty gravy. upsetting <laughs> on a number of levels. <laughs> hey, do you want to hear a little more about Babyland General Hospital? It's rated on TripAdvisor the number two 
of 21 Things to Do in Cleveland, Georgia. It has 595 reviews. Uh, it gets it, it, it gets uh, four and a half stars from TripAdvisor. People love it. Let me tell you one perhaps predictable criticism here. This is a three out of five star review. Magical if you're not looking for ethnic Cabbage Patch Kids. Oh. So I guess they're down in Georgia, they don't, they, you know, don't have a lot of non-white Cabbage Patch Kids. Don't go there looking for one if that's what you're after, at least according to this one. Man, they love it. People absolutely love it. Oh, here's one that says slightly traumatizing. Uh, oh, I'm I giving this three stars because it's free. Yeah. Uh, if you're in the area, you might as well stop. Don't go out of your way for if it. If you've ever been up for adoption, you probably don't want to go to this place. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. seriously. Michelle, I read, a, I read an article earlier this week about a little girl, three years old, and her mom took her to a party store. And because uh, they, they were starting to look for uh, Halloween costumes. Mm -hmm. And this little girl found a baby doll, but it's of a, of a dead baby, right? What? It has X's for eyes, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, the, the little girl begged her mother for the, for the baby doll and she reluctantly bought it for her. And the little girl wanted to name the baby doll Chloe. So the mother talked her into calling her creepy Chloe because she's dead Okay. and she looks dead. This kid is obsessed with her doll. She sleeps with it. She takes it everywhere. And they went to Disney World recently. And the staff at Disney World loved this thing so much that they gave the little girl and her mom and her eight-year-old sister a, a tour of the, the haunted mansion. They all took pictures with her. And, uh, and the little girl later said that she loves creepy Chloe so much that she's going to love her until the day that she dies, too. No. And she and Chloe will be dead together. Cool. Might have accelerated it, really, with the purchase of that doll. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> beautiful, John. Thank you so much. Well, there's one more thing that I got a kick out of. Dwayne Hansen, age 60, has fulfilled a long-held dream to paddle down the Missouri River in a giant hollowed-out pumpkin. I saw a picture of this. <laughs> he did it last week. He he set out in an 846-pound pumpkin, and he floated 38 miles down the, the Missouri River to celebrate his 60th birthday. He says, I've been dreaming about this all my life. This has been a five-year journey to get a pumpkin big enough. He actually couldn't find a pumpkin big enough, so he grew this one himself. This is truly the American <laughs> spirit. The American spirit of the American dream. I said, I couldn't tell from the story that I saw about it if this is like a thing. It's a thing that other people have done. And so he wanted to take part in the trend or if it just was, you know, came from his head alone. This this pumpkin boat. Do I you, wonder. Did you see any of that? No, I didn't. No. The only other like I didn't see anything else related to that story. The only other thing I saw was a guy in China. Um, wanted to hunt for mushrooms and he decided to blow up a balloon, a big balloon full of helium so he could go from one part of the forest to the other. And he couldn't figure out how to come down. Oh no. And he, floated, he floated 300 kilometers. Oh no. Did he survive? <laughs> he survived. But you know, there was a Catholic priest in Brazil 
that tied a whole bunch of helium balloons to a lawn chair um, just for fun to see how, how far he could go. And he went out over the Atlantic and they never saw him again. You've got to have a mechanism <laughs> for getting down, people. You have to think about that. Even when you walk up something, you have to, it's always going to be much harder to walk down. You hey, know this you, from hiking, right? Going oh, yeah. The stairs. last hike yeah. I went, I went on a little, on some slightly dicey terrain in Canada last week and thinking you did this to yourself. You knew what you're getting into. Uh, sliding with every step. I had decided to do it because I'd seen some very old people on the terrain, and I was like, all right. I can do this. I'm not, yeah, yeah. If there's like an 80-year-old with trekking poles, I'm pretty sure I can do this in my sneaks. And I did. <laughs> and on that note, Excellent. we can close out the week. Thanks to all of our guests. Uh, thanks to our producers and engineers here, including Ray Valencia, who joined us for the politics section. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next week.